Mara, everyone, and welcome back to the Resident Report podcast. So it's November, and that means that Thanksgiving is either coming or has already gone. And if you are like me, you had a little bit of turkey on Thanksgiving, which makes you think of a specific offering that we have for our patients in terms of edible things that we have in the emergency room. We're not a restaurant by any means, but I wanted to cover a fun little paper with you if you have a moment. The name of the paper is Winner Winner Turkey Dinner, an empirical approach to measuring palatability and satisfaction with emergency department turkey sandwiches. This is a paper published by Toomey et al. in the Global Journal of Emergency Medicine. It was published in June of 2022. And basically what these guys did is that they had emergency medicine staff try a couple of different sandwiches from a bunch of different centers and rate how well they liked the sandwich. But they actually did more than that. They came up with a score that is very objective. Each of the sandwiches was measured based on six criteria. Those are goodness, right off the bat, olfactory, bite, balance, look, and edibility. And if you combine all those letters, it spells out gobble. I'm not making this up, by the way. And they have pictures of all four sandwiches that they gave None of them look good, but for some reason, this one sandwich from the academic center got a gobble score of 19, which is high. Nonetheless, nobody wanted to recommend these sandwiches to eat. So listen, I'm, I'm not saying that we need to up our turkey sandwich game. I'm just thankful that there is a academic medical center out there that is serving turkey sandwiches that are highly rated by this gobble system. So let us know how your turkey sandwiches are doing. Um, this is going to be a shorter episode. We have a couple less segments this month just because things got pretty busy on the trauma ICU. We'll come back and hit a little bit harder on December. And just like last time, I'm just going to chip in every once in a while between segments. But otherwise, let's get started. So we're going to be super focused on the oropharynx this month. And it's all about Thanksgiving. So let's start off with Jordan, and he's going to talk to us about angioedema. Dr. Jordan Feltes. Today, I want to talk about angioedema. And in particular, there are several different topics that we can discuss on angioedema today. But really, what I want to focus on is the scary stuff, your risk stratification in terms of who is going to need a permanent airway, who's going to need to get intubated, and what patients are going to do just fine without it. And when you see a patient that comes into your emergency department, we'll start with a case that I saw a couple of weeks ago. Say you have a 70-year-old woman, history of hypertension. She's on an ACE inhibitor. She comes in and she says that I've had significant swelling over the last six to eight hours. It's swelling of my upper lip, my lower lip, maybe some of the soft tissues around the lip as well. And I'm really concerned about this. And this has never happened to me before. I have no other symptoms. I'm not nauseated or vomiting. I don't feel short of breath. I'm not having a rash anywhere else. And you look at her, you definitely notice some asymmetric bilateral significant lip swelling. I'm still able to open her mouth and you can see that there's no significant swelling of the tongue or the soft palate or the oropharyngeal soft tissues there. And her voice sounds pretty normal. The question you're asking yourselves and the question I was asking myself is, what is the risk that she actually develops soft tissue swelling within the mouth or the oropharynx and then the larynx that then compromises the airway. And, you know, we could spend a whole nother talk talking about how you 
stratify your angioedema, whether we think it's allergic and IgE mediated, histamine mediated, or more or less on the spectrum of anaphylaxis, or whether it's one of those bradykinin mediated angioedemas that is either ACE inhibitor associated or hereditary associated or one of the other medications or just idiopathic in general. I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of what medications have evidence behind them. Is TXA going to work? Are some of these newer biologics and these bradykinin receptor blockers going to work? I think let's put that on the side right now because one, a lot of those effects are very marginal. But two, the thing that you really care about is how are you going to, in the emergency department especially, is how are you going to disposition this patient and what is their risk of decompensating? Interestingly enough, you can go all the way back to September of 1999 when there was an article by Ishu et al. in Boston. And what their article was, it was titled Predicting Airway Risk in Angioedema, Staging System Based on Presentation. And I thought this was fascinating. It was a retrospective chart review, but they looked at over the several years, about 93 patients who had angioedema within their centers in Boston. And they looked both at symptoms, but then they also specifically stratified patients based on the area of involvement of their soft tissue swelling. And so they categorized it based on face slash lip as number one. Number two was soft palate. Three was tongue. And four was larynx. And there was a little bit of overlap between the groups. But for the most part, it seemed to be isolated and distinct phenotypes, which was interesting. And you don't normally think about, at least for me initially, I would see lip swelling and think, oh, that might progress to tongue swelling, might progress to soft palate swelling, might progress then into the pharynx and the larynx. And really what they were showing is that that doesn't seem to be the case. And the area of initial involvement tends to be the area that is ultimately involved and it doesn't really spread as much as you might think. Additionally, what they did was they observed in their chart review what the results of these patients with different areas of angioedema, which one of them needed to be, for example, monitored in the ICU, how many of them needed to be intubated, how many of them needed some other type of advanced airway or cricothyrotomy, et cetera, et cetera. Probably the crux of this study was that patients who had isolated face or lip swelling associated with their angioedema, who did not have tongue or pharyngeal or laryngeal edema, 0% of these patients needed intubation. 0% of these people got intubated at all. And in fact, within their hospital, about half of those patients that had isolated face and lip angioedema, sent, they sent them home. And the other half, they observed on the floor in the hospital. And again, none of them had significant adverse events, and all of them were able to just be observed and discharged home. That also was the case amongst their patients with soft palate angioedema. Can't say that I've seen isolated soft palate angioedema. I feel like at that point, it either involves some of the tongue or involves the oropharynx. I don't know how you feel about that, Armand, as well. I don't know how you would classify just soft palate. Like if you're looking in there, I would. I don't, I don't know I would, if I would be able to be like, yeah, this is isolated soft palate edema. I think that's a little bit more of a nebulous category, but at least those patients who were defined as isolated soft palate angioedema, again, None of those patients needed an advanced airway. None of those patients were intubated. All of them were observed and did fine and went home. So this is one single study, but it actually does bore out in subsequent literature. And the challenge is a lot of these are retrospective. It's hard to really do a randomized control trial in which you either admit or discharge patients with angioedema or you choose to intubate them or not. I think that's more of a clinician's subjective decision. That would be tough to put into an IRB. That being said, 
all of the retrospective reviews that have come after this have said pretty much the same thing and really emphasize the point that if you have just lip angioedema that doesn't seem to involve the deeper tissues, then none of those patients are going to progress to the point where they have airway compromise. In this study, the issue study as well, it was interesting to note that for the patients who did have tongue swelling, which we think is probably a higher risk factor, it's more towards you know the back of the mouth, you're getting towards those places that can cause airway compromise. Only 7% of them actually ended up needing to get intubated and the other 93% of them did not after observation. You know, those are still patients that were by and large monitored in the ICU and pretty much all of them were admitted. That being said, very few of them actually needed to be intubated. In stark contrast to your patients who were noted and usually by bedside scope to have laryngeal edema associated with their angioedema and as many as a quarter of those patients actually needed to be intubated understandably so. The next study that I want to talk about was 10 years later in 2009. And this was an interesting one by Bent Sienov et al. And their article was called The Role of Fiber Optic Nasopharyngoscopy in the Management of the Acute Airway in Angioneurotic Edema is what they're calling their this specific condition. But regardless, what they did was they took 32 hospitalized patients who were admitted for angioedema. And they had their ENT provider came in and did a bedside scope. And they looked at the airway and they looked at the, the tongue and the soft palate, oropharynx and nasopharynx, and took a look at the larynx as well. And they determined where the edema was located primarily. And the interesting thing that they found was for the patients who either didn't really have that significant edema on their evaluation or had as much as pharyngeal edema without associated laryngeal edema, those patients, 0% of them actually needed an airway intervention. 0% of them actually needed to get intubated, which is interesting. We think about that upper airway swelling, even within the oropharynx itself as being a high risk factor. But in this particular study, which is again, was small and was more observational, None of the patients who had just pharyngeal edema without associated laryngeal edema actually needed to get intubated. And a significant portion, most of the patients who had any kind of laryngeal edema, whether that was associated with other swelling elsewhere or not, most of those patients, almost all of them got intubated. How many total patients? This was only 32 patients in this particular study. But I did think it was interesting in categorizing which patients actually end up having airway compromise. And the thing to think about here is when you're just looking at a patient from the bedside, maybe you're, they open their mouth and you're putting a tongue depressor in and you're trying to look at their oropharynx and stuff like that. It's, you may see some swelling back there and it's hard to tell whether the swelling extends down to involve the larynx or not without actually doing a bedside scope. Really, you're using some judgment and other characteristics of their presentation in order to determine whether you think that there's laryngeal involvement. And some of those things that were a high risk for laryngeal involvement were voice change, hoarseness, and strider, which I think we come to expect as signs of impending airway compromise. But they saw that those patients as well in several other studies and one systematic review, uh, almost all of the patients that had hoarseness or voice change ended up getting intubated and a significant amount of the patients who had either strider or dyspnea, which we would expect being high risk features for impending airway compromise, most of those patients got intubated as well. I think you would be hard pressed to convince me to let people go home 
with this going on, if this is their first presentation. And that's the thing. The question is, what kind of workup do these patients need? Well, in terms of these patients need airway observation, if you come in with isolated face or lip angioedema, I think the literature, albeit not involving RCTs or giant meta-analyses, it's hard to believe that these patients would then progress to have deeper soft tissue swelling, pharyngeal and laryngeal swelling that would then cause airway compromise. I think it's fairly clear that these patients will not. And from my personal practice, what we do is we treat those isolated lip angioedemas very similarly to your anaphylaxis patients where you watch them for a couple hours in the emergency department as long as they're not getting worse, which I haven't seen any of them do. Uh, you can safely discharge those patients with good primary care follow-up uh, and good home support. And I think that's a very reasonable strategy, though you would definitely be more anxious about it if you hadn't looked at the literature and kind of looked at the outcomes of a lot of these patients. Which is where I'm coming from. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, but not really because I'm still terrified of this. What's your end? Like how many of these patients have you seen? In the dozens. It's, yeah. it's not uncommon, especially in this world or in the area that we're in, in which pretty much everyone's got hypertension. Everyone's on an ACE inhibitor. There's also NSAID-associated angioedema and everyone's taking NSAIDs. We have a population in which I'm going to see an angioedema case once every month or two. Yes, same. I haven't seen as many as you, but this is going to depend on, like, as a resident, right? You're going to do what your attending tells you. And if your attending is like, I'm worried about this person's airway, you'd be hard-pressed to be like, I'm not, with, without, you know, going through all this literature. But if you put me in this situation where it was like, now it's up to me, like, I get to make the decision of where they're going to be dispositioned. I don't think I would be comfortable sending somebody home. Sure, okay, it's a lip and facial swelling with no involvement of, like, the mucosa. I think I would be eventually okay with sending these people home. But if somebody had soft palate swelling or any mucosal involvement at all, other than, you know, other than the lips, I don't think you could convince me to send these people home without like, because what have we got here? We've got an N of initially 93 in 1999 and then 32. And you have good evidence in that. But what you've told me is that you've already seen, you're going to see more, more than their entire, more than their entire cohort here of both studies that you mentioned. Definitely, I'd watch all of these people in the ED for a couple hours. And then I'd send, I'd probably send the people home who had like just the isolated lip and facial swelling. But any involvement of the mucosa, I feel like, all right, I, I mean, I, this is an airway watch. I'd want them to be, in, and I know at, at our hospital, it's going to end up being an ICU admission. Absolutely. And I think it's a lot provider dependent. And I, I hesitate to wonder what this isolated soft palate involvement that is not higher risk for airway compromise is. And so for most of those people, but like get rid of that, right? Like I, I would probably assume that there's some kind of pharyngeal involvement or there's base of the tongue swelling or something else like that, that sure. would be higher risk. And those patients would definitely uh, be admitted to the hospital and would definitely be a, at least observed in a place where they could get airway management, or at least they could have attention if their symptoms are worsening. Now, the other question then in order to help stratify your patients is, is it beneficial at all to do bedside like nasopharyngoscopy or some kind of bedside scope in order to be able to evaluate for some of the deeper soft tissues. Like I'd like to be able to see looking down at the epiglottis or looking at the laryngeal soft tissues and the hypopharynx. And if I see a bunch of swelling in some of those tissues, I would definitely be more concerned and be more likely to preemptively intubate those patients. This is what I was going to ask about actually, because if I see somebody initially 
I'm not looking, I'm not looking with the scope, right? I'm just looking with like my eyes. It's, it's not going to be like a isolated, like laryngeal. I can't, I can't see into their larynx. It's going to be like a yes, no mucosa involvement. And then yes, mucosa involvement, admit. Mm-hmm. Unless I'm doing what you're talking about. I guess that helps you d- differentiate one way or the other. If you see pharyngeal involvement and you're, you're saying, I'm going to admit that patient to the ICU and they're going to get an airway watch anyway, then there's probably a little bit lower value to that. If you have patients who have like atypical anaphylactic type symptoms and you think it's more likely angioedema and you're not really seeing any swelling, but the patient's having some kind of hoarseness, voice change, stride or something like that going on, then maybe it is beneficial to get a sense of what the what it looks like in the larynx and where the soft tissue swelling is. At that point, you probably might just prophylactically intubate the patient if you're more suspicious of uh, of an angioedema type picture. But if you're trying to differentiate it that one way or the other, it, it's definitely something to think about and something to consider, although it's definitely not the gold standard and it's not typical practice, but maybe in the future it will be. There's a couple of things I'm going to take away from this. Okay, so overall, mm-hmm. my worry for these people has now decreased. This is what you've done. So thank you. And it's not that your worry for everyone with angioedema decreases. There are plenty of people who have terrible laryngeal angioedema and that end up needing to be you know, fiber optically intubated because you can't get a typical tube in or end up needing a cricothyrotomy or uh, an event placement or something else that is definitely scary. These patients can decompensate. And I don't want to take that away in any way whatsoever. But I think the point here is that there may be several different isolated and unrelated phenotypes that present into this conglomerate of what we call angioedema that might be slightly different physiologic processes that you can risk stratify and help determine whether these people have the chance of impending airway compromise more than just clinical gestalt, because some of them will, but a lot of them will not. All right. Well, I feel a little less on edge when somebody comes in with angioedema now, but obviously I'm still pretty conservative when it comes to managing someone with any kind of airway swelling. Let's move on to Dr. Blackwell, who's going to teach us about electrocardiographic polyuria. And if you don't know what that is, stay tuned till the end. I have with me certified owner of calipers. Do you have them with you? Again, I do. Of course I do. Here they are. Give me a little clip. You ready? Yeah. That's, yeah, they actually do make it. They make make a noise. You don't have to make a noise. You don't have to make a sound effect for the one you open them. They don't make any noise on the open. And closing them always makes me sad. It's the opening that brings me joy. Okay. All right. We have certified owner of calipers, Dr. Taylor Blackwell. So uh, we'll be talking about AV blocks today. First of all, thank you guys for having me back. I don't know that how much of that was y'all's decision, but thank you, Armand, for having me back. Uh, and thank you, you guys, for uh, tuning in again. We'll be doing AV blocks, as uh, Armand said, things that are slow and large, but also uh, blocks like football. You watch a lot of football. Uh We'll go with that. I don't know, man. Um, I'm not going to respond because it's already pretty bad. It, it's pretty bad. But, you know, it's not going to be bad. Your management of AV blocks after this podcast. Sliding downhill right just, now. Just, it's <laughs> all right. Let's get right into it. What is an AV block, right? You hear all these first, second, third. Is there a fourth degree block? Spoiler, there's not. Okay. Okay. Um, going through blocks. Uh, AV uh, stands for the atrioventricular node, which is a node that conducts between the atrium and the ventricles, and it controls the impulses generated by the SA node and conducted through the atrium. It controls how many and at what rate those impulses actually reach the ventricles through the Hisperkinji system, um, which 
tells the ventricles when and how fast to contract, right? And so it is kind of the last gatekeeper of the the cardiovascular system, the electrocardiographic system, uh, in terms of determining heart rate from the ventricles. Because as we know, you can have AFib, you can have A-flutter, you can have atrial tachycardia. The ventricles are the majority of what causes forward propulsion in through the, the cardiovascular system. And so as long as those tachyarrhythmias or bradydysrhythmias stay in the atrium, we can have normal distal perfusion, including to the brain. So really the AV node is, is a big time gatekeeper here. Unfortunately, that gatekeeper is not infallible. And every now and then you'll see some blocks. So we're going to talk about what those are today and give you a foolproof system when you look at an EKG to make sure you determine what those are, because there are really serious consequences to missing these or misdiagnosing these. First degree AV block. So first, we're going to start with first. Okay. First degree AV blocks. Nice. 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 What is a first degree AV block, right? So it is a prolongation of the PR interval greater than 200 milliseconds. That's five small boxes, one large box. That is what it literally is on the EKG. But what does it mean pathophysiologically? It means that the, the atrioventricular node is slow in its conduction of the impulses. Every pulse that comes from the uh, SA node through the atrium hits the AV node is conducted appropriately through the AV node, but it's a little bit slow in doing that. You think about it like like a guy who just had a Thanksgiving dinner, tryptophan is kicked in, he's sleepy, he does his job, right? He doesn't miss anything, but it takes a while to get those kinds of things done. Are we going to get a an explanation that's all based on this guy? <laughs> we'll see what I can do. Now we have to. Now we have to. <laughs> so it's slowed, but consistent conduction through the AV node. Nothing's dropped, nothing's missed, but it's slow. Greater than 200 milliseconds is really that number that you're looking for. What is the clinical significance? You know, honestly, EM perspective, not much, right? It shows a little bit of AV node dysfunction, but it almost never leads to a hemodynamically relevant dysrhythmias or uh, hemodynamic instability because of any issues with conduction. So not much. In fact, the most common cause of first degree AV block is increased vagal tone. And so we see this with drugs that increase vagal tone. And we see this with people who naturally have higher than normal vagal tone, like young, healthy athletes, as an example. So young, healthy marathon runners, this is a totally normal physiology because their resting heart rate is so low at baseline. Part of the way that that happens is the vagal tone from the vagus nerve touches on the AV node and actually increases the refractory period, slowing its conduction. And that's what this is. Uh, the other thing that this can happen with, in addition to drugs or toxicology and natural young athletic hearts, is just anybody who's having increased vagal response. So we talk about people vagaling. One of the things that happens is you see this first degree AV block commonly. We don't always see it because they don't usually vagal on our EKG. But this will extend with too much, too much vagal tone into one of the other blocks or into just a pure bradycardia. And that's when you start to see hemodynamic instability. But Often that first step is a, a PR elongation that we don't even notice. What do we do for treatment, right? We see someone come in, they come in with chest pain or they come in with shortness of breath. We appropriately get the EKG and we see a first degree AV block, otherwise sinus rhythm, no concerning features. What do you do about that, right? Nothing. Well, NTD. You can tell the patient, let them know, you know what, hey, look, we found this, this irregularity in your EKG, but there's nothing the patient needs to do. They don't need special follow-up. It's all primary care. There is a good chance, depending on who they are and what stage of life they're in, that this is not something that's going to be present even the next time that we see them. It might just be drugs. It might just be increased vagal tone at this time. Or if they're a young, healthy person, it might, it might stay until they become not young or not healthy. But nothing for you guys to do. Don't worry about it. Mention it. Get your RVUs for appropriately uh, reading the EKG, but then let it go. Second degree AV blocks. 
All right. The next thing we're going to be talking about is second degree AV blocks. This one is a little bit trickier because there's more than one of them. First, we're going to drift back in time just a little bit and do a little bit of uh, medical history here. So we talk about second degree AV blocks. Does that trigger any names for anyone out there? Is there a, is there a name that we associate with second degree AV blocks? Uh, yeah, I was going to say Mobitz or Wenkebach or. Yeah, absolutely. Those are two names. Does hay ring a bell? No. Yeah, it probably it probably shouldn't, but it will after this podcast. Okay. So we'll go with Mobitz first. Who was Mobitz and why did he get his name on both of the second degree AV blocks? Vold, Voldemar Mobitz. And I'm absolutely pronouncing that correctly. Don't even try to correct me. Voldemort. <laughs> Vol- Voldemar. OK. Uh, he was a German mathematician, also happened to be a cardiologist. <laughs> What? <laughs> he he took those two passions and tried to put them together. So he decided he was going to use a complicated mathematical formula to try to determine the differences in the different types of second degree AV blocks. Right. So he spent a long, like many years of his life, multiple years coming up with a complicated mathematical formula to separate categories of second degree AV blocks. That is an absurd statement. When you figure out that what he looked at is, is the PR, what it comes down to is, is the PR changing. But he developed this complex mathematical formula, proved there were two different types and put his name on both of them. Um, I would love to say he died of an arrhythmia. That would just be perfectly classic. But he died of laryngeal tuberculosis. Later, Wenkebach and Hay, who we'll talk about shortly, came in and put their names individually on Mobitz 1 and Mobitz 2. But... Mobitz is synonymous with a second degree AV block. Mobitz type 1 or Wenkebach or second degree AV block type 1. So what is Mobitz or a second degree AV block? The first Mobitz 1, which is second degree type 1 or Mobitz 1, also termed Wenkebach, it is definitionally when you have progressive prolongation of the PR interval, which results in a non-conducted P wave. And so what you'll see is that every now and then, and this varies based on the interval prolongation, you'll see a dropped QRS with an, a normal P wave. So you'll see normal P waves marching out, but the, the PR segment is lengthening for each successive beat until eventually that PR is too long to be appropriately conducted and is dropped. What is actually happening there pathophysiologically is those AV nodal cells, kind of akin to the guy who had too much tryptophan, is getting sleepier and sleepier. So he's easily fatigable. And so he works out, he starts out conducting those immediately and appropriately. And with each successive one that comes in, he gets more tired. It takes him longer. It takes him longer until eventually it's so long that he either forgets that it came in at all or he just gives up. And so you get a dropped beat. At that point, he's had a short nap kicks back up for the next one, is back to a short PR interval and appropriate appropriate conduction. So what causes this kind of fatigability of the AV node? It's again, as you would expect, because it is essentially an increasingly fatigable version of type one, it's increased vagal tone mostly. So drugs, increased vagal tone. The one thing that I want to add that is not commonly associated with a first degree AV block that is associated with a type one second degree AV block is uh, reversible ischemia. And this is important because as you get ischemia to the AV node, you have less of the AV node that is able to make that conduction. So it is increasingly fatigable. Those refractory periods last longer. But the key with second degree type one is that it is reversible ischemia. It doesn't become a type two potentially until it is irreversible. So you will often see Mobitz one that resolves 
And that is super important because, A, if you see Mobitz uh, 1 or a second degree type 1 on a previous EKG and it's not present today, that is totally fitting the pathophysiology of this disease. And B, if you see a new Mobitz, if you see a new Mobitz 1, which is second degree type 1, you should, in your own mind, at least consider ischemia. Are there any other signs of ischemia on the EKG? Because it is sometimes associated with reversible ischemia. Whereas in a first degree AV block, I don't even want ischemia to necessarily cross your mind more than it would for any other EKG. What is the clinical significance of all this? The good news is that even though it's associated sometimes with reversible ischemia, it's benign on its own. It almost never progresses to third degree AV block. It has somewhere between a one and 4% progression rate to a third degree AV block and rarely ends up being hemodynamically relevant. You'll see a second degree type one AV block a lot. And if that patient is having hemodynamic instability, it is probably not from that second degree type one. So don't hang your hat on that. Look for other causes. Okay. What do you do about it? If they are asymptomatic, nothing. Uh, similar to first degree AV block, maybe tell them about it. Get them PCP follow-up. If they are symptomatic, try atropine because it is increased vagal tone mediated most of the time. Atropine will almost always work when there is any level of hemodynamic instability. You rarely have to get to pacing or anything scarier than that. Mobitz type 2 or second degree AV block type 2. Speaking of pacing, we'll move on to a more severe uh, second degree type 2, also called Mobitz 2. This was actually initially characterized by Mobitz when he separated the boxes, but then further characterized clinically by a physician named Hay, who studied under Wenkebach for six months. And so these are all, all three of these people are kind of like molded together, coming up with this all at once. But the important part for us about second degree type 2 uh, is that clinically what you'll see on an EKG is intermittently non-conducted P waves without any change in the PR segment. So rather than second degree type one, where you have an elongating PR segment until you have a dropped beat that then cycles back, second degree type two is a bang on perfect constant PR interval and a sudden dropped beat. Now that just in my mind doesn't seem consistent with fatigability as first degree and second degree type one is, and that's because it's not. Pathophysiologically, what we think is happening with a second degree type two block is that you have literal st structural damage to the Hisperkinji system. It's sometimes an AV node issue, but the term second degree AV block is a little bit of a misnomer because when they go in electrophysiologically, what they more often find is that the very early parts of the Hisperkinji system is what's damaged, which leads to the fact that you often, not always, but often if it's a little bit, if it's the very beginning of the Hisperkinji system, you will not see a bundle branch morphology, but you will sometimes see it in a second degree type two if that Hisperkinji lesion is more distal because of it's affecting one of the two main fascicles of the Hisperkinji system, you're gonna see a bundle branch block on the other side. So what does this mean? pathophysiologically, because it is a structural damage to the Hisperkinji system, it is less commonly tied necessarily to a, a pattern. With Mobitz 1, you tend to see fatigability more often than not in a reasonable pattern. So you'll see like 3 to 2 or 4 to 3, where it takes a certain amount of time for that refractory period to elongate enough that the AV node doesn't conduct. Second degree type 2 
will often have no fixed pattern and suddenly drop beats. And so you'll see a changing pattern in terms of the uh, how frequently you have a dropped beat and it will be suddenly dropped because it just hits that part of the Hisperkinji system that is structurally damaged and fails to conduct at all. That being said, it's still not uncommon to see type two second degree AV block that does have a regular pattern if the heart is just bypassing the particular subsection of the Hisperkinji system that is, is damaged. So what does this mean clinically for us? In terms of clinical significance, it is much more likely than either first degree or second degree type one to become hemodynamically unstable or to progress to third degree AV block. And so these are not patients you want to mess with or discharge. These patients need cardiology evaluation. They need to be admitted for permanent pacemaker. And if they are hemodynamically unstable, try your atropine, but because it's not mediated by increased vagal tone, there is a much higher percentage chance that you're going to need to go to transcutaneous or transvenous pacing for these patients. So take these seriously and make sure they get admitted, make sure they get prompt cardiology follow-up when you're dealing with a second degree type two. One note that I would be remiss to not note as an EKG nerd, but probably doesn't make any of you, you guys take out your own calipers and get excited yeah. is a second degree block is entirely mediated in terms of type one or type two by the PR segments, right? And so if you have a two to one conduction where you have two P waves for every QRS, every second P wave is non-conducted. And so you never have a second PR segment to compare to. So technically, if you have two to one conduction of a second degree AV block, you cannot reliably distinguish between type one and type two because there's never a second PR segment to prolong. And so the question is, is this type one where it's just fatigable and it fatigues so quickly that the AV node doesn't conduct every second beat? Or is this a Hisperkinji system issue where it every second beat is going through the damaged section of the Hisperkinji system and not getting conducted? So technically, when you describe a second degree AV block with two to one conduction, you call it a second degree AV block with two to one conduction. You cannot specify Mobitz one, you cannot specify Mobitz two. And in those cases, personally, I'm getting cardiology on board because what you don't want to do is misdiagnose it as a type one second degree AV block. And then they have a, a high risk of progressing to third degree or going into asystole. The, the subtlety here is that often we talked about in type two second degree AV block that the ratio is not always consistent. And so if you put these people on rhythm strips or you just repeat EKGs with every 10 minutes, every 30 minutes, it is likely that eventually you will catch a section of an EKG where they have a non two to one conduction pattern. And then you'll be able to definitively diagnose between these. So this is not the kind of thing that I think you just consult cardiology and wipe your hands up. You got to get these repeat EKGs because if you can get a second EKG that shows that are dealing with a, a prolonging PR segment, then you're dealing with a, a, a second degree type one and you're much less concerned. You probably don't need cardiology to see them in the ED. The little subtlety there that actually makes a big difference. Third degree AV block. All right, we're getting, we're getting to the fun stuff now. We've talked a little bit about first, second degree. Obviously, third degree is, is more fun, less fun for patient. We hear it referenced as complete heart block. There's some subtlety there that we're going to talk about in a minute here, but you can, you can think about third degree AV block as a complete heart block. And where is that heart block? It's in the AV node. So you think about the AV node as being essentially non-functional. 
somebody has turned the AV node off or the AV node has died. Often that is either progression of chronic disease, which you would usually see, and this may not be part of their medical history if they don't see a doctor frequently, but often that second degree type two first that then progresses as the disease worsens and you get more increasing structural damage, or you can have sudden third degree AV blocks in the setting of ischemia that is irreversible. And the common teaching there and the common thing that we actually see clinically is an inferior MI where you have the blood supply, usually from the RCA, if they're right dominant, that supplies the AV node getting abruptly cut off and the AV node panics and shuts off. And what you tend to see on an EKG is independent atrial and ventricular activity. You can think about both of those resorting to kind of their own autonomous pathways completely independent of each other. They're neighbors that live next to each other, but they've got a hedge between them and they don't, they don't interact at all. Um, this isn't like the so show with Tim Allen with the good neighbor who's always looking over the fence. It's not that one. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> all right. So what home improvement, home improvement. That's the one. Was it actually home? improvement? Home improvement. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. All right. Clinically, what does this look like? It's usually bradycardia. Your atria tend to function at their normal rate, which is appropriate. But then the, the normal ventricular escape rhythm, whether that's a junctional escape rhythm coming from the, the AV node or the very proximal Hisperkinji system, in which case it'd be narrow, or more distally from the ventricles themselves, is somewhere around 40 and is going to be bradycardic for the patient, almost certainly. And so that patient is going to be much more likely to have hemodynamic instability as a result of the bradycardia. Unfortunately, it's not an issue with stroke volume. It's not an issue with volume. It's pacing. You need to get that heart rate up. And so be quick to A, put the pads on because this has a a higher chance of going into something like VTAC, VFib, or asystole. And so you want those pads on early. But secondly, you want to be pacing these patients early if they're hemodynamically unstable or showing signs of poor perfusion. So they're altered. They have poor distal perfusion. When you're looking at pulses, you're looking at color. You can start with transcutaneous pacing, which is totally appropriate because all you need is electricity for this heart to kind of repace. But transvenous pacing is something that I would go to earlier than in other conditions for this because it really is a structural issue with the AV node. You need a fair amount of electricity to overcome. These patients always need admission for a permanent pacemaker don't <laughs> right don't, don't send these patients home even if they look great and they're hemodynamically stable third degree av block comes in no questions asked so we talked about there being some subtlety to third degree av block and what is that subtlety so you can think about third degree av block as a complete heart block but you'll also hear the term high grade av block which is not technically a third degree av block when you're looking at an ekg and 90 percent of it is third degree with completely independent atrial and ventricular rhythms. But every now and then you get one impulse from the atria that sneaks through the AV node appropriately and is appropriately conducted where these, those two systems sync up. That tells you that there is not a complete loss of function of the AV node. It is occasionally conducting appropriately. That technically is not a, a third degree. So it's not a complete heart block. That is called high-grade AV block. It is a type of severe second-degree AV block that does not fit into first or second type. If you really need to put it in your own brain, you can think about it as a insanely severe second-degree type 2 where every beat is non-conducted and occasionally you get one that goes through. That you treat like a third-degree AV block. So all the things we just talked about still apply. 
Isorhythmic dissociation. Third degree AV block with isorhythmic AV dissociation. How many of us have heard that term? It's rare. What? Yeah, it's rare, but it's fun. And I mention it because we like fun things on this on this podcast. And this is one of the most fun diagnoses I've ever seen. I've seen it once. This is a very weird phenomenon where you have significant cardiovascular disease such that the SA node is diseased and bradycardic at baseline. Your junctional rhythm is coming from high, either in the AV node itself or high in the Hisperkinji system. So it is relatively tachycardic for a ventricular escape rhythm. And so you see a narrow complex ventricular escape rhythm and an atrial rhythm that is bradycardic enough that it happens by chance to line up exactly with the rate of the ventricles. And so you see what looks like normal sinus rhythm, but is actually complete heart block. And it, it it's something that obviously it would have to be perfect for 10 seconds straight for you to miss this. But if you see a patient who's hypotensive and looks like a third degree to you, but he just looks like normal sinus on the monitor, think about this. It's something that's very, very rare. And more commonly, what you actually see is that the disease to the SA node is not significant enough that they are properly in the 40s from the SA node. That doesn't usually happen. What usually happens is that they're in the 80s for the SA node. And what happens is that second T wave consistently falls dead center of the T wave. And so you see a deformation of the T wave that looks slightly peaked from the second E wave being dead center. If it's off center at all, you see a deformation on one side that tells you, you know what, this might be a P wave. But if it's dead center, then it's it's pretty much impossible to see. Boogeyman of EKGs, don't worry too much about it. I doubt you'll see one that's perfect, but I have seen them where they're just off center and you see a consistent deformation of the T wave. So look closely if you think this patient is unstable and it just looks like sinus rhythm. Make sure you're not missing something like this. But if you do send it to me, I would love to see it. Summary. So clinical pearls, tying this all together, we've talked about them all individually. What should we be doing on our next shift and how can we remember this? So first degree AV block, nothing to do, prolongation greater than 200 milliseconds, easy. Just memorize that. Second degree, I'm going to split that into type one and type two. We're going to use the uh, eponyms just because they rhyme. Second degree type one is wanky back, longer, longer, longer drop. Then you have a wanky back. Okay, if the PR segment is elongating until you have a dropped beat and then the cycle restarts, it's it's a wanky back, which is type one. Second, second degree type two is if some P's just don't get through, then you have a Mobitz two. Okay, that's how you remember that it's a, it's a second degree type two. Third degree, third degree, bad, complete heart block. I don't think any of us will forget that, right? So what subtle findings should we be looking for on an EKG to determine this? Most commonly, when, you, when you're looking for blocks, you're looking in the setting of electrographic polyuria, right? How many of us have heard what? that term? Right, exactly. I love it. Uh, credit to uh, Dr. Amal Matu for coming up with this term. Let's sound it out together. Electrocardiographic, EKG, polyuria, too much P, right? So you have too many P waves. Not enough QRS. It doesn't line up. You got yourself some electrographic polyuria. Is this uh, is this uh, electric DKA? I don't think so. So what is it? Most commonly, it's PACs. The one thing we haven't talked about yet. Look for those. If every non-conducted P wave is coming early compared to the other P to P intervals, it's just PACs. That's most common. That should be the first thing we look. Okay. You think about. PACs, premature atrial contractions, premature, 
comes early, right? Is this a, is this a family? <laughs> <laughs> All right. PACs come early. We're just going to dead silent for like a couple <laughs> seconds there. Okay, good. Uh, this is commonly misdiagnosed as Mobitz 2 because you have a consistent PR segment for all of the other conducted waves, and then you have a sudden dropped beat. Make sure that that P wave, that P to P interval before you call something Mobitz 2, is consistent even on the dropped beats. Because if it's coming early on the dropped beats, it is just a PAC, which needs nothing, no specific treatment, and cardiology is not going to put a pacemaker in. They're not going to be happy at 2 in the morning when you call them in for Mobitz 2, and it's just a PAC. Now that you've nailed down that these P to P intervals are constant and it's not PACs, then we move on to the rest of our blocks. Second degree type one, your P to P is constant and your PRs are increasing until you get your dropped beat. Mobitz two, your P to P is constant and your PR is constant. You suddenly have dropped beats. This may be in a fixed interval. This may be a random interval. Third degree, your P to P is constant again, because independent atrial activity and your R to R is constant, and your PRs are all over the place. They're randomly changing. Sometimes they're getting longer, sometimes they're getting shorter. That's your differential for electrographic polyuria. Thank you so much, Taylor, for once again making something that is usually benign, like a normal sinus rhythm, incredibly scary for being a, what did you call it? Is it you wrote Isorhythmic AV dissociation. Thank you, isorhythmic AV dissociation. Great, now I'm scared of everything. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Alrighty, so now that you're scared of normal sinus rhythm, I can appropriately move us back to the oropharynx. I want to teach you guys about peritonsillar abscesses. Hey everybody, it's Armand. So we're going to talk about peritonsillar abscesses. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is because a long time ago, when I did my first peritonsillar abscess, I didn't really know what I was doing. The first time that I did a drainage, I was looking into the mouth, into the oropharynx, kind of seeing that they had some swelling on one side with some a little bit of uvular deviation and the attending said to go ahead and stick them. Now we had already anesthetized this person with some topical benzocaine and gave them some lidocaine. And after doing that, I was cleared to go ahead and put the needle in to do the aspiration with the needle. I just didn't really know where to go. So I think one of the most important things that we're going to learn today is where to put the needle. And it's hard to kind of describe that on an audio format. But the main thing I want you to know is that you're not putting the needle in the tonsil. Do not put the needle into the tonsil itself. That's not where the abscess is. The abscess is hiding kind of behind the tonsil. Where you're actually going to be going is called the anterior tonsillar pillar. The tonsil sits between the anterior tonsillar pillar and the posterior tonsillar pillar. And you want to go to the superior pole of the anterior tonsillar pillar. Again, you are not going to go into the tonsil. Background. So let's get to the procedure itself. But before we get there, let's talk about peritonsillar abscesses. These are deeper space infections in the head and neck. They're usually more common in adolescents and children than they are in adults, but you want to be prepared. If you're in an adult emergency room, you should know how to deal with this. Usually what you'll see with people is that they'll come in, they'll have a sore throat. They will have some uvular deviation or a little bit of a swelling that they'll notice because they'll sometimes take a look in the back of their throat. And if they don't, then you'll take a look and you'll notice that there is some swelling on one side um, usually don't see bilateral peritonsillar abscesses. When you see this, one of the questions becomes, okay, do we need to image? And the answer to that is that most times, 
know if you see some swelling, the person has a fever, they have a sore throat, you have an obvious location of where this infectious source might be. You probably don't need to image the person, but in some cases you might want to rule out a deeper space infection. So we're talking not just a peritonsillar abscess, but maybe a retropharyngeal abscess, especially if they have things like vocal changes and they seem very sick. In that case, if they can lie supine, you can put them through a CT scan and get a CT soft tissue of their neck. You're going to need some contrast to kind of highlight that area. What you don't want to do is stick your needle in and get nothing and realize that all they really had there was a phlegmon or like a developing abscess. There's no actual cavity with fluid in it. So a CT scan can help you there. This isn't something that we can do in our shop right now, but you can, if you have a endocavitary probe with ultrasound, you can actually go to the bedside you can use an endocavitary probe and put it in the patient's oropharynx and take a look. You just don't want to tell the patient where that endocavitary probe has been. In some cases, you can actually use a linear probe as well and kind of put it submandibular to get a good look at the fluid pocket. But it seems like the best way to do this is actually to use an endocavitary probe because then you're kind of getting right to where you want to be. The advantages of using imaging are that you're going to know how exactly deep that you need to go in order to get fluid out and drain them. The disadvantages, obviously, being you're going to have to lie the patient flat for a CT. You're going to have to expose them to a little bit of radiation, some contrast, or you're just going to, you know, if you're using the ultrasound, make them a little bit uncomfortable. Materials. All right. So let's say you've decided you are going to do some needle aspiration. What are you going to need? So first of all, before you start doing anything, you're going to want to get consent from the patient and you're going to explain what you're going to do for the patient themselves. They're going to be an active participant in this. No, they can't go to sleep, actually, because they have a job to do. And that job is that they're going to give you the suction to clear your space so that you can see what you're doing and that they are going to also provide you a light source so that you can see what you're doing as well. So really, they're clearing the way for you to do your work. All right. So that kind of brings us to a couple of things that we need. So the first thing that you're going to need is a light source because you're going to be going into the mouth. It's going to be dark in there. And for the night is dark and full of terrors. So let's start there. My preferred light source is a laryngoscope where I give the patient the handle and they can depress their own tongue and shine a light on the abscess itself. That way they can kind of control their own gag reflex, which helps. You can also use the bottom half of a one-time use speculum. I think for obvious reasons, we're not going to use a reusable one. The last thing you can use, you can use a video laryngoscope. I think this is, this is a cool idea so that other people who are visualizing the procedure with you, they can actually see what's going on in there. I don't recommend showing the patient what you're doing in their mouth while you're doing it. I feel like that is going to introduce unnecessary movement. The next thing you're going to do is you're going to hand the patient a Yankower or any kind of suction tip that you need there, and you're going to let them handle the suction themselves. So when they feel like it's kind of like when you're at the dentist, if they feel like they need to spit into the suction, then they can do that. The next thing we're going to want is anesthetic. So for this, you're going to use some mucosal topical anesthetic. I like to use benzocaine and it comes usually when I type in hurricane spray. That's how I order it. It comes in this neat little bottle. And what you're going to do is you're going to use the applicator kind of aim for where you're going to put the needle, which is remember is the superior middle and inferior pole. So you're going to numb those areas up with some benzocaine. You're also going to want some intradermal lidocaine, the stuff we use for lac repairs and such. I don't always use the intradermal lidocaine for my peritonsillar abscess INDs, but sometimes I feel like they help. Now, if you have it, you can bring an incision and drainage kit. It's going to have most of the stuff that you're going to need. But the one thing that you're not going to have with an incision and drainage kit is a needle. This is a needle aspiration. So we're going to need a needle and the needle that I 
like using are either the 20 or 18 gauge spinal needles. And I'll tell you why. For most people, what they'll get is those needles that have the safety caps on them. There's 18 gauges, they're 25 gauge, 23 gauge, all sorts of gauges. The reason I like the spinal needle is because you have a really nice little guard that is on the spinal needle. And the issue with doing these needle aspirations for the peritonsillar abscess is that you are now in the neck. And if you miss the abscess or if you go any which direction, usually more deep and lateral to your peritonsillar abscess, you are at risk of hitting the person's carotid artery. Now, that is a very small needle. It might cause a hematoma, but it's in a spot that is very much not compressible. So you really want to avoid something that's really long and sharp that you're not going to have control over. And the way to control this is by getting a spinal needle, for example, and cutting off the distal one centimeter so that if you hub the spinal needle, which you're going to keep the needle guard on there, if you hub the spinal needle with the needle guard on there, you're only going in about a centimeter and you can't go any further, which is great because then you have very low risk of actually hitting anything vital like the carotid artery. Most of our sterile 4x4 packages actually have a ruler on the side of them. And if you have a pair of Raptors, you have a ruler on the side of those as well, actually, on the blade. You're going to take one centimeter, take some trauma shears and cut off the distal one tip of your needle guard so that one centimeter of needle is exposed. You're going to put that on a 10 cc syringe and then you're going to use your and then you're going to use your one handed syringe technique when you eventually aspirate. All right. So we got everything we need. The next step is to have some supervision. If this is your first time doing this or have a couple extra hands, always useful. And then you're going to give the patient the laryngoscope or light source, whatever you have. And you're going to give the patient the suction, make sure it's all working. You've consented them. They understand what's about to happen. You kind of walk them through so that they understand what's happening. In some patients, I've actually found that they need a little bit of something to calm them down. I will give patients some oral analgesics as well as some oral anxiolytics sometimes as well. So sometimes some Versat as well. But I usually keep it pretty low dose. I'm not trying to knock them out completely. I want them to be completely aware and capable of participating in the procedure. So the first step is you have the patient themselves hand you their hand, which is wrapped around the laryngoscope, and you place the laryngoscope sort of where you need it to visualize where you're going to go. The next thing you're going to do is keep have them keep the laryngoscope there, open their mouth wide so that you can place the benzocaine or topical anesthetic, spray it on the area where you're going to poke. The optional step here is that if you feel like you need it, you can also load up a syringe with some lidocaine. And again, you're only going less than a centimeter deep, right? You're just going to anesthetize that superficial layer of mucosa. So you're going to go in with a needle, go like half a centimeter in and numb up the area with a needle. And then if you are doing this the correct way, which we always teach, you're going to aspirate first before you inject. If you aspirate some pus, that's fantastic. You can just inject into that area, inject as you're coming out. After you do this, you're going to want to let the patient suction out all the terrible tasting medication that was just sprayed onto their mucosa, as well as any residual lidocaine, any blood that might be in there. Now comes the important part. You are going to use the needle and angle it so that you're going deep and you're actually going to go more medial than you are going to go lateral. And remember, you're going to be going to the superior pole first. And if you get nothing there, middle and then inferior, your goal here is to go deep enough while you're aspirating to get a little bit of pus. Once you have pus, it's usually going to be mixed with blood. Once you have pus, you're in a good spot. You can actually orient your needle ever so slightly in a couple other directions to see if you are hitting a better pocket somewhere else. Generally, I don't get too much out of these peritonsillar abscesses unless they're huge. Most of the time, I'll get maybe one cc if I'm lucky, one and a half, two cc's. 
And then once I've gotten that, I can aspirate it. Once I'm done aspirating and I'm going to take my needle apparatus out, I'm never going to take that needle guard off. And hopefully by this time, the patient will have already used the suction to kind of get rid of their secretions. And you should see a little bit of blood in the vacuum chamber. There might also be some pus in there as well. Your main goal here is to let the patient kind of come back to their normal state. And then they should tell you whether they feel subjectively better. Their voice should feel a little bit more normal. They should be able to tolerate their own secretions. And towards the end of this, it's very important that they're able to tolerate a little bit of PO. So give them some water. And as long as they're able to tolerate PO and you've done a good job with your aspiration, you're in a good spot. I'd watch the patient for an hour and then let them go home. There's the last couple of things that I want to mention here. And that is, let's say that you don't actually get any pus out of your first aspiration. That's okay. You move down to the middle pole and then next you move down to the inferior pole. And if you don't get any pus out of any of those sites, I would probably move to imaging at this point to see if you're just not going deep enough or what the deal is here. You may need to go to an incision and drainage. You may need to call ENT. You may need to get a CT of their neck to see what's going on. Another question you might have is, do you send this stuff that you've now aspirated off to the lab to go grow out. Usually you don't have to. The vast majority of these are going to be polymicrobial with the abundance of some staff that's in there as well. Most of the time I'm sending these people home with a little bit of Augmentin and then having them follow up in 48 hours with either their primary care doctor or an ENT. If you're having a patient who is a little bit jittery and really not cool with needles, one of the main things that you want to make sure you do is have them sitting up Sometimes I have people up against the edge of the bed, but most of the time, actually what I do is I bring the head of the bed all the way up. I have the patient sitting kind of at 45 degrees or a little bit higher, and I have them rest their head all the way on the back of the headrest. I don't want their head moving back at all while I do this. In fact, I would rather have them not move in any way at all, just because I'm going to have a needle in their mouth. And we kind of covered it already. Afterwards, the patient should have a little bit less swelling. They should be able to tell you that they feel a little bit better and they should be able to tolerate their secretions and tolerate a little bit of PO. The last thing that I'll mention with all of this is that there's been a couple of studies that have actually shown that the treatment failure rate between doing a needle aspiration and doing just antibiotics for a peritonsillar abscess is pretty similar. This is covered on an MRAP episode. I'll link the MRAP episode and I'll also link the paper that they were discussing as well. This is just at the beginning, I believe, of the October MRAP. There are a couple of really great resources that I would highly recommend that you use. There's a ALEM article on this whole process that has some great pictures to kind of show you how to do, for example, like how to hold a needle or a syringe so that you can do it all with one hand while you use your other hand for a light source. So I'll put that all in the show notes. But to summarize this all, summary. Take a look, do a physical exam, see where you're going to go with your needle. The main point being that you're not going to go into the tonsil itself. You're going to go peritonsillar, so that's a little bit lateral. You're going to the superior pole first, then your middle and inferior if you can't get anything out of that. For your materials, you're going to want to get a light source, and that can be either a, a laryngoscope blade, a video laryngoscope blade, or the bottom half of a speculum. You're going to need some suction and you're going to hand both of those things to the patient so that they can control that themselves. You're going to need your syringe, a needle. I recommend a spinal needle because they're long and easier to maneuver. And you should also get an incision and drainage kit. It just has a lot of the stuff that you're going to need that'll make it a little bit easier for you. So you don't have to go grab a bunch of stuff from an IV cart. Lastly, you're going to want to make sure you have your topical anesthetic like benzocaine or hurricane spray and intradermal anesthetic like lidocaine as well. 
For the procedure itself, you want to make sure you walk through the procedure with your patient so they know what's going. No surprises there. Have them open up their mouth, use a laryngoscope blade or whatever light source that they have to kind of depress their tongue and give you a light source. You're going to have them hold the suction. You're going to cut off the distal one centimeter tip of your needle guard so that you only go a centimeter deep with your needle. And then you're going to go into the superior pole after giving them some benzocaine and some intramucosal lidocaine if they need it. Stick the superior pole, aspirate as you enter with the needle. If you get something fantastic, you can reorient your needle as needed while you're in there. You're only a centimeter deep. If you don't get anything, try the middle pole. If you don't get anything there, try the inferior pole. And if you're out of luck after three, the baseball rules apply. You're out. Start looking into either doing some imaging, having your expert consult come by, or transitioning to an incision and drainage after you've confirmed where this abscess is. When you're done, let the patient go home. Have them take some antibiotics. We recommend Augmentin because these infections are usually polymicrobial and then have them follow up in 48 hours. That's all I got. That's peritonsillar abscess and drainage. So that's it. That's the end of November's episode. I really hope you like those three segments. And as we kind of move into December, I wanted to reflect a little bit on the year and at least shout out a couple of people and services and things that I'm thankful for that have helped me make this show. The first group of people I wanted to thank is my residency family. That includes my PD, my APDs, my fellow co-residents, especially my class who has volunteered without any payment at all to help me with this thing that I really want to do. Obviously, very thankful for all the teachers I've had who have brought me to the place where I am now. I'm extremely thankful for some of these services that have helped me make this podcast. I don't think I could do this without them. Things like Adobe Audition, which we get for free through our program, Pixabay, which is like this free online database of millions of sound effects, which you hear sometimes throughout this podcast. The wealth of knowledge available through all of the free open access medical education resources that I've used throughout the years. We're talking things like ERCast, MCRIT, WikiM. ER, EM cases, EM clerkship, EM docs, Rebel EM, and then there's the ones that are paid like Rosh Review and MRAP. These are all insanely helpful to me and I am very thankful for them. I'm not going to ramble on forever. Lastly, I want to thank my wife, my parents, my pets, and my class. That's pretty much it. I want to leave you with one thing before I go, and that's something that I learned from one of the ED nurses that I've worked with. So Maggie, if you're listening to this, big shout out. I had a patient not too long ago who it was very obvious that they were going to pass away while they were in the emergency department. And instead of prolonging their suffering, the the patient and her husband made the decision to have her be comfort care. So she slowly passed away. Unfortunately, it was in a place I feel like not ideal in the emergency department. But to make it feel a little bit better and to give us a little bit of a sense of this person's background, who they really were, the ED nurse started playing one of her favorite songs while she was passing away. And I think that this is such a great idea. I've started doing it for my patients who are passing away. I find it just really nice to know a little bit about this person who I took care of that isn't involved with all the medicine and stuff to know that this person's favorite music was opera and they used to go to the opera with their family or this person's favorite music was piano 
and that they actually were a pretty accomplished pianist in their day. That sort of thing, I feel like, takes me out of the monotony that is medicine and, and the way that we work in today. So if you have the opportunity to find out what a person's favorite song is and it's their last couple moments on Earth, highly recommend playing their favorite song for them. Sounds pretty grim, but something that I'm pretty thankful I learned from one of our nurses, just because it makes me feel a little bit more human. Anyway, that's all I got for November. I will see you next month. It's going to be an exciting December. Got lots of things going on. I'll tell you all about it next month. Bye-bye. What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This isn't fair. What's this?